0: This is the Going in Circles podcast, hosted by Horseman, Chuck Simon. To become a sponsor, to suggest topics, or for questions, email podcast at gmail.com and log on to our Facebook page, Going in Circles podcast. Here's your host, Chuck Simon.
1: Hey everyone, welcome to Going in Circles. Today, um, it's kind of an interesting start to the day with, uh, with word that a federal lawsuit has been, uh, filed in, um, court in New York against the jockey club by three very prominent farms. Um, it wasn't entirely unexpected that this would happen, but, um, when you read through the, uh, uh the claims there's a lot of stuff there um it's a uh it's a pretty thorough lawsuit and i mean i'm not a lawyer i didn't stay in the holiday inn express last night I, I just obviously i'm just reading industry um uh, accounts of it but it sounds pretty um it sounds pretty damning to the jockey club in that there's a lot of things, uh, admittedly, a lot of things happen in racing that we just kind of get instant opinions on. Oh, well, I think that's a good idea. Oh, I think that's not a great idea. It's a bad idea. Or this or, you know, that. Um, but the financial aspects are, are very difficult to ignore. And you're talking about uh, the horses. Of course, we're talking about the jockey club limiting stallions books uh, stallions that were born in 2020 or after uh, limiting their books to 140 mares a year it's something uh, we talked about a couple of weeks back with Stuart Morris a lot more extensively and I think it was pretty well received in the industry outside of uh, the major breeders and and of course the the big stallion operators who this mostly directly is going to affect. Um, And like, it seemed like the, this was going to wind up in court at some point, but it's just kind of, um, I I thought it was, was really uh, in more impactful when I was reading through and they're talking about had these changes been in effect for the last breeding season it would have meant an $85 million loss uh, to the stallion farms. And I, again, this is what was printed. I don't know if that means they were just subtracting the um, the stud fee from, you know, minus uh, whatever they, they covered versus, uh, or a- actually in, in a lot of cases it's, it's fold versus 140, considering that, I mean, obviously, those mares are going to get bred to someone, and if they're good enough to be considered for those type of mares, most of the time, uh, a farm, especially these farms, Spendthrift and, and Coolmore, have so many um, stallions that they probably would wind up getting those fees back in, in a in a different um, on a different stallion, though, of course, probably at a reduced rate. So, you're talking about a, really a tremendous amount of money, and. Uh, again federal lawsuits like we've talked about in in the the cases with the trainers that that were arrested last year um it, it takes a long long time for these cases to wind through federal court and this one i, I expect would uh, wind up us you know taking some time and we're going to talk about this a little bit later in the show a little more extensively uh, we're going to have uh Troy Levy's going to be on. He's he's in Kentucky and he's he's what you would call a small breeder. He has a handful of mares and he's not breeding to um, you know into mischief. <laughs> I'm sure he'd like to, but uh, it, it does it does um, affect everyone. There, there certainly will be a trickle down theory in effect in that. If you do cap uh, I think there was 42 stallions last year that, that would be affected by this. Obviously, some might just be over the 140 limit, some are, are probably you know way over the 140 limit. Um, but of course, uh, you know there, there's certainly pros and cons to both sides of this story. and I just you know from a, a standpoint of, hey, like you're the Czar of racing, you can do whatever you want. Um, I probably would have put a, um, a limit as well, but I, I also, there's so many repercussions like, uh, a good point was made to me about, well, doesn't the limit also kind of reduce the value of bloodstock coming off of the track, uh, at least for stallion wise is that, the the pot of gold is going to be a little smaller and um yeah that's probably true and yeah uh it's hard to have a lot of sympathy for people who are selling horses for 10 20 30 50 million dollars that they're only going to get you know 10 15% less but uh i mean the law is the law is the law and how it's uh, uh you know affected here it will be kind of an interesting um an interesting story to, to watch. And, uh, like I said, we'll talk about that a little bit longer. Uh, or excuse me, a little later in the show, our first guest, uh, it's actually a pair of guests. It's a training team and it's, uh, not only a unique team, it's, it's a fascinating story in that we have, um, Phil an- Antonucci, uh, Philip Antonucci, who is, uh, from the family that own Lindy Farms, which is uh, more or less like the Claiborne Farms of of standard bread racing, is uh, he's uh, venturing out to train his own horses, and he has a training partner um, who who would probably be, uh, uh, (laughs) it's hard to even imagine, but uh, uh, his name is Jimmy Tatker, and he is a, uh, a Hall of Fame harness trainer. Um, he's essentially, uh, the Bob Baffert of, of, harness and he is going to partner up with, with Philip, and they're going to, uh, they're, they're already training. They're, they're in Payson park and, uh, they have a, a hand handful of thoroughbreds and we're going to have them on to talk about that unique partnership and, uh, and, um, you know, how, how it came to be and, and, uh, what their, what their goals are, what they're looking, looking to do. Um, it's, it's really uh, interesting to me. And, and I thought that it would be a, a really unique story to, uh, to, to bring to people. And I, I think that, uh, um, you know, certainly people like, like me who, who have connections in, in both businesses and, you know, have grew up both b- basically in, uh, you know, both the standard bread and the, the thoroughbred industries. Um, it's a lot bigger deal. A lot of people who are just thoroughbred people probably aren't really familiar with some of these names um, but these are, are really, uh, uh, you know, prominent people in the standard bread business, and they're going to take a run at, uh, at training thoroughbreds, and, you know, to be honest, there's there's really no reason to think that they won't be uh, successful. I mean, obviously, there's lots of differences, but uh, we'll, we'll have them on in just a few minutes. Uh, at four, we're going to have Troy Levy from Circle 8 Farms. He is... Um, He's kind of he's located in, in uh, just outside of Lexington now. He's got a farm. He's breeding some mares. He's got some racehorses. Uh, uh, a lot of a lot of interesting innovative ideas he's trying out. And um, you know, a guy loved the game. And, and ironically, uh, Troy started out in the standard standardbred business as well. Um, not quite at the level of <laughs> of our first guests. Uh, uh, he he did most of his his racing and uh, driving. He was a driver. Um, which would be hard to believe looking at him today, but um, at the Monticello and then some at Roosevelt Raceway when when that track was was still uh, was still was still running. But um, he's gonna he's gonna come and kind of give us a little update on what he's got going on, and you know kind of get his feelings on the uh, the stallion situation as that is uh, now that the HHR. Uh, bill has been signed into law in Kentucky. Now, now this is certainly the uh, the, the biggest uh, topic uh, going in the bluegrass state of, of what is going to happen with, with this lawsuit. And and we'll get his feelings on that. And uh, wrapping up the show, we're going to have BRL Equine's Joe Villante. Joe Villante. I didn't want to give the Spanish pronunciation. I wanted to give the Italian pronunciation. Uh, he's going to be talking about their newest product, Flexify HA, which is a joint supplement. And he's also going to talk about, more importantly, um, he's doing restaurant reviews for the uh, Going in Circles Digest uh, every couple of weeks. And his his first review um, was Salveo Kitchen and Social from Saratoga, which, which got his number one ranking um, in his favorite... Uh, uh, is currently number one ranked in, in Joe's Joe's uh, racetrack city restaurants. Uh, Joe gets around a lot. He, he's, he's, uh, his job is, um, um, you know, causes him to be able to, uh, you know, go, go all throughout the country. And, um, he's, uh, he's inclined to try all kinds of different restaurants. And then we'll talk to him, uh, at the end of the show. um, again uh it it's it just coming out I, I mean i know a lot of people listen to the show um after it's been taped and and on delay and uh, i i guess uh, the the latest news is that tiger woods was in a, a a car wreck this morning and um might be a little bit banged up um it's kind of um unsettling news you know we're, it's uh just uh, you just never know what's what's going to happen in this world it's uh it's crazy. I guess they're saying that he has some uh, some leg injuries. Um, hopefully, he's uh, he's going to be okay and and be able to uh, you know return to uh, at least just you know just be okay. I mean, he's he's had a amazing career, and uh, even if he was to walk away now, it, it's almost an unparalleled career. So hopefully, he's uh, he's going to be all right. Um, the Southwest. Which is the twice postponed derby prep um, at Oaklawn Park was drawn today. It drew a field of seven. Essential Quality, who was the last year's two year old champion, the winner of the Breeders' Cup Juvenile, drew the rail under Louis Saez. Um, Jackie's Warrior, who was the favorite to you know, going into that Breeders' Cup Juvenile after really dominating. The competition in New York. He is uh, drawing post four. Uh, with Joel Rosario will be in town to ride him, um, and Spielberg um, ships in from California for Bob Baffert, who who's used the uh, the Arkansas uh, road to the Derby quite often, quite well. Uh, Spielberg is not really a fast three-year-old at this point though Uh, his uh his race is he won the Los out futurity up the rail in a a really pokey time and um he's a he's a talented horse but he he just hasn't quite uh turned the corner yet though you know with Baffert of course you always have to be uh wary in these three-year-old races because he he just um he's just got an unbelievable record though this one especially drawing outside at Oaklawn and in the mile and 16th a uh, short stretch. I, I'm not real high on him, to be honest. I, I think Jackie's Warrior is is probably the horse to, to beat in there, in that he just looks like he's going to be on an uncontested early lead. Um, it's a $750,000 race. Unfortunately, it's only 10 points towards the Kentucky Derby um, entry, and I mean, what I've talked about it uh, a couple weeks now that it seems like. Churchill really needs to kind of adjust some of the the races, and and I think they're just putting a little bit too much um, too much emphasis on the the last few races. Uh, a notable absence in the entries for that race is Keep Me in Mind, who uh, finished third in the Breeders' Cup Juvenile and came back and won the Kentucky Jockey Club. Um, he was scheduled to run in the Southwest, but. Uh, Apparently, they're going to pass now and point to the Rebel, which is only two weeks away now, um, but offers 50 points towards the Derby. Uh, And it it kind of makes, keep me in mind, um, I'm not criticizing the move at all, but it it certainly is going to to prevent him from having more than two preps for the Derby. and um, And with his style he's a dead closer um it's um it's hard to um it's hard to, to to imagine you know or it's not hard to imagine him getting in a little bit of traffic trouble and and finishing fourth or fifth um and and, and really being up against it having like having to earn points in the, the final prep, which I'm guessing would be the Arkansas Derby, though the bluegrass or the wood or, or, um, you know, other races certainly would be in play. Uh, it, it just, uh, the, the postponement of the Southwest has really squeezed plans, um, for everyone. And it, it's making, it's making life a little bit scary. Uh, uh, you know, we're, we're only 60 days away from the final, um, uh, you know, Derby preps being run because obviously there's no preps run the, the Lexington is the last prep run, I think two weeks before the Derby. So, um, it, it just, it's getting a little dicey and, uh, you know, prevalence is, uh, who was a really fantastic maiden winner on Pegasus day is not entering the fountain of youth because he, uh, he spiked a fever, which really puts him up against the, 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 the wall here in that he's a horse that, is entering March with one lifetime um, race at seven furlongs, and, and in two months we're going to be asking him to go a mile and a quarter against a, a most likely a, a twenty horse field. So it's just there's no room for there's no margin for error at this point, and that I think that's part of the problem with the uh, the point system is that they're pushing everyone to wait later and later and later, and when something like this happens in Arkansas, where we get uh, two weeks of just unprecedented bad weather and there's just literally no other options, um, you know, for those, those people that are training there. Uh, some of the bigger outfits of course can ship horses to their different locales. The, you know, most of them have, have two, three, four different places they're training. So those guys are are fine. It's just the smaller guys who are kind of stuck in one, one spot that, uh, it just is. Uh, it just is. It's a tough road to hoe, and to me, they would be better off uh, spreading those points out a little bit throughout the calendar year, and making the, the early preps a little bit more uh, enticing for for uh, connections to shoot for, so that they don't have these uh, gun against your head uh, need to win or run second in order to get in. Um, because there's so many things that can happen in a horse race and there's so many things that can happen leading up to a horse race that just might, you know, at some point prevent the best horse from being in the race. And, and isn't that the idea of the point system is to get the best 20 in the race. So so we'll see what happens, and uh, hopefully, uh, you know, it looks like the the worst of the weather in Arkansas is gone, and and they get the preps in, and uh, they have a couple other big races too that have been postponed. But I feel bad for those guys because I've been stuck in situations uh, um, where we couldn't train very much, and, and uh, it, it just you, you get to you get to not knowing where your horse is at when you just can't do anything with them, and um, it's not an easy it's not easy with thoroughbreds. Uh, it's really not that easy probably with standard breads either, and our, our next two guests are are very much um, entrenched in the, uh, the standard bread business for their whole lives, and they're venturing out, and they're trying thoroughbreds. Um, welcome to the show, uh, Phil Antonucci and um, and Jimmy Tacker. Hello, guys. Casey,
0: oh. they should be there, Chuck.
1: Are they there? Are you guys there? Yeah, I am. Yeah. All right, all right, all right. There you are. <laughs> I thought we lost you. Technical no, difficulties. No, no. Um, how are you? How are you guys doing today? Well, we we're doing
2: good. I mean, we're in Florida, and uh, weather is great, and uh, uh, be around the horses can't be better, right?
1: <laughs> you know it's so funny sometimes I remember I, I was training and I, I would look at the purses up north and I would look at some of the fields and, and they didn't look very good and I thought to myself you know maybe I should keep some horses up there and then I was up there for a couple of years and, and, and the weather was miserable and then I said you know what I could probably just give up the couple of months and, and go down to Florida and, and, and deal with the sunshine yeah, yeah. Um, Phil Yes, sir. There aren't a lot of... I, I would imagine there aren't very many standard bread trainers that that graduated from Ivy League schools. And I got to tell you, there aren't a whole lot of thoroughbred trainers that did either. Um, you know, your, your family is, has been in the harness business uh, with Lindy Farms, which is... I, I kind of described them earlier as the Claiborne Farm of, of standard breads. Um, what made you interested in, in getting into the thoroughbred side, as opposed to the standardbred side.
3: <clears throat> yeah, you know, I've been very fortunate to be around horses my entire life, and you know, mainly through standardbreds. Uh, I kind of grew up around. My brother was a was a standardbred trainer for about ten years and had success, and then you know stepped away to join a family business, but kind of grew up around it as an assistant to him and going traveling with him, and uh, you know we had we had kind of vacationed up to Saratoga in the summer times. And uh, got to know Wesley Ward and become good friends with Wesley Ward and just spent more time up there and kind of really fell in love with, with Saratoga and the atmosphere and the backstretch and everything like that. And, uh, you know, got started working for Wesley for, for one summer. Uh, um, and then, you know, actually up in Saratoga, I got uh, Wesley introduced me to, to Gay Waterhouse. And, uh, you know, I had met a few graduates of the Flying Star program, and, and it was kind of something that was on my radar and, um, you know, gay was, was fairly well connected with the flying start people. So, uh, she offered me a job to come down to Australia for the, for the summertime, uh, in between junior and senior year of college and kind of just really immerse myself in business down in Australia for the summer and, and fell in love with it. And, and from then just kind of decided that's what I want to do. And, uh, you know, was, was lucky enough that, you know, his highness Sheikh Mohammed and, and the, the team at Godolphin granted me a scholarship for the flying start. And, uh, since then, did, did two years of that and uh, and, and starting and to do this now. So, you know, it was uh, kind of a natural progression to start with standard breads and kind of get an interest in the thoroughbreds. But, you uh, know, happy, happy where it's going.
1: So, so you work uh, you work for another uh, a couple other trainers as well, right? You work for Todd Pletcher. Um,
3: yes. Yeah, yeah, so I was, was lucky enough on the course to – it's the great thing about the Flying Start program, and kind of whoever you want to go – you admire or you want to go spend time with, um, they kind of set you up, and you know, in America, it's you know Todd his success speaks for himself, and and he's as good as person as the other trainer, and kind of always admired that, and and was, was lucky enough to spend uh, I think of three months up at uh, Belmont with him during the during the program, uh, which is awesome. It was you know right during the Belmont Stakes, and you know it was it was a great time, and then actually spent some time with uh, Mark Johnson in in uh, Midland, England. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's he's the all time leading trainer in in England, so it was another great experience. So, yeah, I was able to see quite a quite a different kind of variety of training methods around the world, and and uh, you know it, it was an awesome experience and incredibly grateful to for the Flying Start program.
1: Yeah, the Flying Start program has has so many uh, you know successful graduates in in all phases of the game all, all over the world. It, it's really a, a a great program, and and it's it's awesome that you want you know wound up to getting to go to Australia and 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 see how things are done there and uh you know get to get to experience um you know these other different methods of training because obviously I'm I'm sure the way it's done in Australia the way Mark Johnson does it the way Todd Fletcher does it are are probably all distinctly different
3: yeah yeah absolutely and like even kind of just just thinking about it, I, I forgot to mention Doug Watson was able to spend kind of uh, three months with Doug Watson in Dubai, so that was also very different you know I you have you know crazy different environments from the desert in dubai to to the city in Australia to belmont park and um kind of you know what it made every trainer great was they are able to adapt to, to their facilities and to their horses and uh, it was a really really great lesson in in making use of, of what you had and what was best for the horses and their environment
1: excellent that's that's very very that's very very true um, now your partner here, Mr Tatker. Um, a lot of thoroughbred people might not be familiar with the name, but I described you as essentially the, the Bob Baffert of standardbred training, and that um, you know, some of your accomplishments, you've been in the Hall of Fame since 2012, uh, you were the trainer of the year, uh, you won that award six different times, you've won 30 breeders count races. Uh, you won the Hambletonian four times. The Hambletonian, I guess, would probably be like the Derby or the Belmont Stakes, including one time as a driver. Now, now Baffert, I can guarantee you, he would never have won any of the Triple Crown races with him as a jockey. Um, you won the Little Brown Jug. You've trained, you know, great horses. Always be Mickey, of course, was was the last, you know, really great horse that you had. Um, and I know, you know, you famously kind of retired. Um, what brought you back? To try, um, you know, this partnership with Phil to to try to try thoroughbreds.
2: Well, you know, we last year I uh, I, I retired. Now uh, this is my actually third year since I retired. I I just couldn't feel myself motivated to do something you do for done for all your life. You, you know, I I came to a dead end in my feeling for the sport, and uh, but uh, Philip's dad. Frank, I trained for Lindy's Farm for, uh, uh, trained their horses uh, for basically 38 years. I had horses for them, and uh, we, we were fortunate to have that great horse money maker, which was retired as the richest standard bread. And I think even female horse ever, at $5.8 million about 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, last year I started getting involved a little bit with their standard just to have a little bit to do. And, uh, you know, then we have Philip here that, uh, you know, have all the bases in the world to become a a really great trainer. And, uh, you know, and I always had a little passion about thoroughbreds, but I never participated in it because I grew up in Sweden, uh, uh, which have a trace track called Jagishro, which have thoroughbreds and standardbreds on the same ground. So, you know, I know a little bit about the horses, a little bit. I saw them, but I never worked with them, so... I always had a passion that I want to, you know, like, uh, you know, see uh, if we can uh, do something about it. I mean, uh, I, you know, I, I I don't have at all any foundation uh, regarding the sport, but the horse is a horse, and uh, I know horses pretty well, and Philip have a very much... Uh, you know, basic, uh, uh, you know, ground training, but they have no experience really it's so much of, uh, the racing itself. Like, you know, I managed the greatest horses for the last 20 years in, uh, in the standard. So, you know, so, and uh, we talked a little bit about it and, uh, you know, I mean, uh, so, uh, we have a very small stable, just 12, 13 horses, but, uh, it's, uh, it's exciting. And, uh, I, I, I uh, I, I look forward every time I going up
1: there. Now, you guys are are based at Payson Park, correct? Yep. Um, where do you guys uh, foresee the? I mean, Payson. When when you leave there, what what, what track are you are you considering um, stabling at?
3: Yeah. So the plan is to go from here to uh, Saratoga, and kind of with that kind of idea in mind, to, to really the next kind of. Two months, three months to really kind of aggressively add horses to to the barn to to be able to compete at Saratoga. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think it's important for our first year that you know we we come out running at Saratoga and get on the board a few times and and uh, have have a very good meet. And you know we realize how competitive and stuff like it is up there. But uh, you know we plan to to, to add some horses in this next couple of weeks that, that can really compete there. You know we, we probably have uh, four or five horses right now that are those. You know, three are probably stakes-level quality that could fit up there. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we've got, got some really nice, well-bred babies that, uh, to this point, make you believe that they could be Saratoga-type horses. So that's the plan, and, uh, you know, we've realized how competitive it's going to be, but, you know, we're willing to step up to the challenge.
1: Sure. Uh, so most of the horses you have are, are, are young horses, uh, race.
3: Yes. So we have, uh, we have eight, eight two-year-olds, um, and then we've got five, uh, five older horses right now um a couple are going through a little injury issues right now that uh that complete the 15 um and then like i said trying to actively you know participate in the private market and and uh claim a few horses as well
1: you know i i think that that's one of the things that um is is most difficult um for standardbred people that get into thoroughbreds in that thoroughbreds just aren't like remotely as tough as standardbreds and um i mean it it 's just uh when I was a kid working uh you know with standard breads we were we were talking about you know the bottom of the barrel three four f- you know five claimers but you know thoroughbreds are just it 's just a different um you know the breed is different obviously but man it 's just uh, if a thoroughbred gets a little shin they 'll limp and and a bread, you know like they 'll just run through just about anything and and I think that 's the toughest uh you know like the toughest variable it just would seem and that the the, you just can't train them hard you know can't hard train hard on them and and um you know i think that that's you know i've talked to a couple guys that that have tried both and and that's always the 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 you know the you always go into it thinking well man these things are a little softer but the fact is that they're a lot softer and um like how how do you guys um how, how do you divvy up the the duties at the barn
3: yeah, I mean, I mean Jimmy. Jimmy, kind of, um, I, I kind of, he's my my godfather consultant kind of. <laughs> any uh, any questions I have in the barn or anything like that, uh, I, I go to him and, in terms of training schedules or what kind of routine we want to do and stuff like that. But the uh, the day to day management of the horses and stuff that that falls on me. Um, and you know, manage the staff, manage the horses, manage any any uh, any daily issues and stuff like that. And, and Jimmy. Uh, Jimmy will come up and, and watch works, and, and uh, if we have an issue or something, he'll he'll come up and, and give his two cents. Um, and but like you said about the, the soundness issues in thoroughbreds versus standardbreds, I think what what made Jimmy so successful in his career that you know he he's been training for gosh 40 years, but you know really last 10 years, 15 years, he hit his kind of hit his real stride and put together kind of a, an amazing. Kind of finishing to his career, and uh, you know, talking to him, he's always he's always willing to to try new things and adapt to to the horses. You know, standard bred, they're they're kind of evolving every year. Um, they're going faster. They're getting more refined. And Jimmy was able to to stay ahead of uh, ahead of that and really kind of change his program to tailor it towards uh, a more refined horse. And and I think that that helps us because you know, Jimmy's willing to try anything and and constantly change. So. Um, he's a great, he's a great mentor to have, and, and uh, a great partner to have
1: in the stable. Yeah, it sure, sure is. I mean, uh, not not a lot of second trainers come with the credentials <laughs> that Jimmy Taggart's yeah. got. Um, Jimmy, what what, is, what what do you see from your point of view? Uh, and I know that you guys haven't been doing this that long, um, but like, what do you see as the major differences in training standard standardbreds versus uh, training uh, thoroughbreds?
2: I, it's one thing I, I, I'm a little concerned over and, uh, it's the surface. I mean, uh, it's, uh, I noticed, you know, of course track and track, uh, you know, racetracks probably are better than the training tracks, but, uh, we have to, you know, like we started with our babies a little bit and we went, uh, you know, and started gallop a little bit on the turf a little bit, but, uh, you know, uh, you gotta be careful because uh if you're not really on the right surface a little wrong step there here and there you know like we have a hard surface in the standard bread and uh, and uh you know no big holes i mean you you know i I think it's uh, I, I think we 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 did a little couple adjustments here in the last couple weeks here and uh, and I like how we changed it up but uh, i'm I'm a big believer that you have to have a foundation on the horse. And uh, and uh, I don't try to invent the wheel here, but I think, uh, you know, I don't mean exactly that you've got to go fast with the horses, but I need they need to have a base. And uh, if you don't build a base on them, uh, they're going to race two, three starts and then they'll be finished. And uh, that's what we try to do. And we add a little bit and add a little bit. And uh, it's, it's, uh, I'm sure we're going to learn a lot this year, especially I will. But, uh, you know, it's, but the guys, they train them pretty hard. They, they, they train them fast. And, it's, you know, I mean, you know, it's not like uh, they don't train these therapists, They train them actually a little harder than I thought they do. You know, I mean, uh, but uh, me, I'm a little concerned. How much base do they have to go that speed they're going? You know, that's, you know, because I was one of those trainers that never trained fast, really. I was a grinder, 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 and grind forever. And uh, when the horse, I felt like he had a foundation behind him. Then I put the push to him, and uh, and that's what I was successful. I know I understand that uh, these horses are totally different, you know, but I like to build up a little bone on them, so they have like a little bone destiny and things like that, and uh, which, uh, you know, the standard bread do have and uh, the don't. But, you know, I, I, we haven't really, and I haven't really – uh, figure it out yet? But uh, maybe I will never do it. But uh, that's uh, it's a challenge. I mean, I you know I, there is like a, in in a thoroughbred business you have uh, basically the same uh, great trainers every year, like in the standardbred we have five six trainers. We basically fighting for the big races almost every year. I mean, you know, you see Fletcher Baffert and all, and Chad Brown and those guys. They're, every year they are on the top, you know. So. And really don 't change that you know too much, so apparently they do a little better, you know maybe but but think you know they get a lot of great horses and they run a big stable. We just have thirteen horses, so every single horse they get uh, uh, quite a quite a lot of attention at this point, so which I think is very good for us at this point, really, because you know Philip is very young and uh, and uh, and uh, I don't know uh, anything about thoroughbred, so it's gonna be interesting.
1: Philip, how how old are you?
2: No, I'm 26. I'm years old. Yeah, Philip is six, 26. I mean, I'm 60. So, uh, but you know, he grew up with horses all his life. So, you know, he, and he's, he's a super, super, super. Uh, talented young man and I, you know, otherwise I wouldn't work with him. I, I, I see all the potential. He's probably not going to need me in a year or
1: two. You going to kick you to the curb. <laughs> yeah, you
3: probably do. They probably do. It won't be that easy to quit, Jimmy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's, that's actually pretty, that's pretty funny. Um, uh, uh, Philip, um, let me ask you this question based on, on, you know, your, the different people that you, you've, um, you've worked for, how How does the, and, and then, of course, obviously with Jimmy's input, like, how do you guys develop your feed program, and, and did you see a big difference between uh, how horses were fed in England versus Dubai versus Australia versus uh, for Todd versus, uh, you know, what what you guys do in the standard bread business? Because that, that would seem like it, it might vary a lot.
3: Yeah, I mean, I guess every every trainer is, is different in particular. Um, kind of one trainer that. Mark Johnson's very very focused on the horse's weight and um and the feed correlates to that. Like, you know, if he had, he sets a target weight for his horses and, and uh whatever the top performance was to that to that target weight, um he kinda trains he trains their body weight to that to that point. So like you know, if a horse is light he'll add more feed. If a if a horse is, you know, heavy he'll will train harder. So he kinda gauges his whole his whole training program based on his feed program, which I thought was interesting. Mm-hmm. Um but you know, you can you can overcomplicate it a lot, and it's you know Mark Johnson's very simple, um, a lot of haylage and and just normal Bailey's feed, and uh, you know and, and everybody's different, and kind of you know I didn't, I always thought that it kind of depends on the climate and places and stuff like that, and and uh, you know I always thought Wesley Ward's horses looked looked great and ran great and were in great condition, so um, good friends with Wesley and, and just we're feeding in the hallway. 13, which which nearly most trainers feed in, in America, and they seem to love it. Yeah, um, yeah. And I know, you know we feed four times a day, which is kind of a standard bread kind of mentality that, you know, feed them a little a lot, a lot of times, keep them, keep them eating throughout the day. Um, I know Jimmy, know, Jimmy, what was your feeding experience like at your stable? Well, you know, I, I always trained up
2: north in uh, the standard bread, and uh, you know, when you train north, you gotta feed them a lot more because they gotta deal with the cold weather. So, uh, and that's uh, that's a big factor. But uh, you know, I mean, down here in Florida, horses have more tendency to, you know, keep the weight better. You know, so. Uh, but uh, we we feed we feed our horses quite a bit with the standard bread, too. You know, we did. But uh, you know, it's a different metabolism on the stirbreds versus standardbreds. Standard bread have, you know, they don't need all that much food like the Thoroughbred does. You know that's, it, 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 The Thoroughbreds, the food goes straight
4: through
1: them much faster than they do on the Standard Let Everyone okay? Let me ask, let me ask you this, uh, Jimmy. In your experience with Standard Breads, um, how big of a deal do you think not being able to use Lasix uh, is going to be versus... I, I won't say with Thoroughbreds because you guys haven't really even raced any, right? You're, you're so... Um, like what? What are you? What's your feelings on on LASIKs not being allowed uh, with 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 race in general?
2: Well, you know, I'm from Europe, and uh, we don't have any LASIKs, and uh, and we do quite fine without it. You know, so uh, you know, I mean, it's
4: uh,
2: I I mean, you know, it's, it's, I I I think eventually, in know, a couple of years, it's not going to be any LASIKs at all in the United States either, because you know, I mean, it's... Uh, but same token, it's hard on a horse when it, it's a bleed. You know, you're going to have horses racing as a bleeder. So, you know, I mean, you damn if you race them with it, you damn if you don't. I mean, it's... Uh, I think older horses, yes, it's, uh, I, I, I have nothing against it. I I don't think two- and three-year-olds should be on it because they're still in the maturity age that... Uh, you know you can deal with them, but when a horse is coming up like uh, five six years old, and they continue racing, you know they they will bleed most of them eventually they, 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 they it's unbold, you cannot avoid it basically yeah
1: and i think I think that's one of the issues see one of the issues that I've had with with the 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 fight to start with is that it just seems as though. Like I know that when I I trained for years uh, in Kentucky and, and up north, and when I I moved to Florida full time, I found my horses bled here a lot more than they did uh, in the other environments, and I really believe it. It's got a lot to do with the environment, the the humidity, the fact that um, we're in an area even up in Payson, you're you're north of of like south you know Florida, but it's still the the it never gets to be freezing, and and you know the the bugs and whatever never die and and it just seemed like we had a lot more incidences and, and a lot of them were minor and it i 'm not saying that they all started like you know bleeding from their nose, but um you know that the thing was it just seemed like it was a political thing more more than a an actual hell this will help us along but uh like you said it 's the law now it's going it's going to come and uh I just really i, w- I wanted to kind of you know get your input from uh a person that that you know you've had experience for so many years. Uh, with both and, 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 you know, using Lasix and not using Lasix. And, uh, I mean, how how often would you, would, I mean, I know this is a very general question, but, um you know, how, how many, like if you had a barn of uh, 50 horses and standard breads and of course I know you have you, you had mostly young horses, but like how many of them yeah. would you consider bleeders uh, on average? I would say a, a good 25%. 25%, right, okay. Yeah, because thoroughbreds is probably about it's about fifty percent, and of course people want to quibble about um, you know what a bleeder actually is. If a horse has a little tiny uh, trace in his trachea, does that make him a bleeder versus a horse that you know bleeds out of his nose and um, you know it's just kind of semantics? But uh, but as you said, you know there there are uh, you know the, the the rules are changing, and, and we're just gonna have to have to deal with it. So um,
2: well, it's it's tough to shut something off you know let's say you have a 6 year old horse that's racing and racing good and uh, then suddenly you say you cannot race on lasix i think you have to say okay we start the folks of 21 or whatever they can't be on lasix and then they graduate up to their age you know because it's it's it's, it's uh, a horse that on lasix is very hard to take them off
1: yeah yeah and that, i think I, that's been a lot of the complaint in california this winter where they uh, they're not allowing horses in any stakes to have Lasix. And, um, you know, most of the, a lot of those older turf horses are, are you know, horses that have been Lasix, uh racing on it for four or five years now. And now, you know, you're taking seven-year-olds off of it. And, uh, I, I mean, I can see both sides of it, but I, I just, it seems like it's just uh, the implementation has been a little bit uh, uh, rough, you know, at the at the very least. Yeah. Um, are you guys going to do any shopping at the uh, the upcoming 2-year old and training sales? Well,
2: we're going to we're going to go there but uh, I'm doubting we're going to buy anything there.
1: Yeah. Yeah, because I, I mean I know that um the you know we have the Fazic Tipton sale coming up at Gulfstream, and then uh you know the Ocala sales start and uh uh you know it seems like that that's not something that you guys really do in standard breads, right? I mean, you don't really have um you know, in tra- I mean you you have got you guys have more like mixed sales for older horses, uh people like reducing their stock, but um you, th- there's no real two year old in training sales, correct?
2: No, no. We have uh we, we, we don't they tried that a couple of years ago with no success, but uh you know, in the thoroughbred business uh, you know, it's big money. There's a lot of peanoks and uh, Stuff
1: like that, we don't have anything of that. Yeah, it, it's it's tough. I mean, the one thing that, when you look back over the years, there's been a lot of really successful horses coming out of two-year-old and training sales, but it's really skewed towards the top end. Um, the the even more than yearlings, you're seeing a lot of the higher end uh, purchases turn out to be really good two-year-old or you know older horses. Um, or three-year-olds be and and, uh, you know i guess one of the theories is that they were tough enough to get through you know breezing as fast as they can and and um you know have all the physical attributes you know they're the they're the top of the top but um it is it is you know kind of uh it is i think i guess that would be probably a bigger difference because you're getting a horse that's already been broke it's already been through all all that whereas you know, you guys would be used to getting babies, right? And you would start them yourself.
2: Yeah. Well, we have also a big difference in the standard branch versus the third Bridge. We have a stake program. You buy into a lot of stakes, and uh, that's a big expense. And, uh, you know, they start already February 15th, and every month up to May 15th, we have stake payments we're making. And if you stake your horse, they end up actually cost you approximately twenty thousand to stake a two year old in in most stakes and uh, you don't have that in the third business. So if you add that to the purchase price, I and mean, if the horse is not staked that much, you also jeopardize the value of the horse so that I think that's a big reason why we don't have these kind of uh horses in training sale, you know, because if people put money into staking and then uh, you know, they don't get the money back if they stake them and put them in So, you know, it, it's a way different business in that aspect, you know. I mean, you know, it's, you know, the earning is very good in the stand too, you know. I mean, uh, you know, I did $13 million, you know. I, you know, my stable did uh, approximately $150 million in purchase. You know, so it's, it's, uh, my daughter was trained over the year last year in the United States and, uh, she did over $8 million in purchase and uh, and uh, with very few So You know, you can you can do very well in the standard bread too, but, but uh, uh, the interesting thing in the in third bread is, is a worldwide sport. You know, like we just have France and Sweden and Europe and the uh, United States and Canada. So it's very small uh, participation from countries, you know. So, yeah. You
1: know you know, right. I have a question for both of you, and, and this is Philip. You you worked uh, a little bit down in Australia. Um, you see a, a, a huge number of Australian and New Zealand horses in the Standardbred business being imported to the U.S. and, and raced, you know, hugely successfully. Um, do you think that that there might be a market for those type of horses to come to the, the United States on the thoroughbred side? Because you very rarely see horses imported from from Australia or or New Zealand, um, in the in the thoroughbred
3: business. Yeah, I would say kind of the, the the difficult aspect of that is that the you know southern hemisphere age versus northern hemisphere age. But you know, say they're four year olds, right? So it would be different. But I, I think absolutely, I think they got the, I think without a doubt, they have the best sprinters in the world in Australia. Um, you know, I think they got the horses are hardy, they got strong bone. Um, you know, they're raised like horses and, and they're, uh, you know, they great feet compared to a lot of, a lot of thoroughbreds over here. Um, yeah, so I see no reason why, why they can't import them over here. Um, you know, they have a a good two-year-old program. Um, so they have a good foundation and, and I think they definitely compete over here. You know, you see them go to, you see, like David Hayes and and people like that, bring them to Dubai for the Dubai Carnival, and, and they do well in those races. So I, I see no reason why you can't bring them to America and participate in America. Yeah, I
1: mean, a lot of the horses that are that race in Hong Kong, where <laughs> racing is just a, a you know at a, at another level, um, are, are from you know uh, down under, and it always kind of interested me because you see a lot of standardbreds with the A or the N at the end of the name, and and in thoroughbreds, it like literally never happened, and and, and, you know turf racing in this country has kind of changed in, a, in that uh, twenty years ago there were very very few turf sprints in American thoroughbred racing there just wasn 't and now i mean there 's breeders' Cup races, a couple of them and and, and they 're getting uh, you know certainly more popular they, they they feel like crazy i mean if you're, If you go in a turf sprint race, you can almost always expect uh, at almost at any level that you 're going to you know be in a full field and and I just thought you know Phil this might be an opportunity for you to use your connections and uh you know maybe come come up with the you know uh a, a a viable source of uh of top turf sprinters.
3: Yeah, I would take a black caviar or a chouzier, it's fine with me. <laughs>
1: or winks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, any of them.
3: They're all good.
1: Yeah, that that's funny. Um Jimmy, you didn't really train a whole lot of uh, of of imports from down under. I mean, I don't remember um too many of them with you.
4: No, I, I,
2: I well, I have a uh, horse that ended up to be a stallion. They came from down under. It was named Lazarus. Really good horse. You know, I mean, he's, he, he was racing at the highest level, one of the fastest horses race here. So, but uh, no, I, I was never really too much in, in the race or fitness anyway. It's like Philip said, you know, all those horses are six months behind or so you, I just basically was two and three old trainers, very few horses, like over E.T. I raced at the H horse, and not much in that field. So, I, I, no, I never was really too much in in race horses, more of your state horses. So I haven't had too many horses from down on no.
1: Yeah, it was always kind of fascinated me because, I mean, you know, since I was a kid, there would there would be a lot of uh, imports, and now it seems like, uh, you know, you look at, at Yonkers or the Meadowlands, and it, it seems like a third of the horses, at least, uh, on a daily basis. And and I, you know, I mean, this time of year, they're all race race, you know, race horses. They're overnight horses. They're not stake horses. But uh, but yeah, just kind of interesting because the world is getting smaller, and, and you know, in, in racing, and you know, we we had the races uh, this weekend from. Uh, Saudi Arabia, you know you know you ever thought you'd see a twenty million dollar race wow <laughs> so I mean and and they're not easy to win, of course um but uh I appreciate listen i i really appreciate you guys giving me some time today and 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 talking about uh, what you got going on and uh when do you uh, Phil when do you think you'll have your first runner
3: so I would say probably um second or third week of March here. Uh, you know, we got a couple there. They're they're tuning it up, um, and so, so just trying to get them ready and make sure all all systems are covered before we go.
1: You're going to run a Gulfstream?
3: Yeah, either Gulfstream or Tampa. Okay. I have to run both places.
1: Right, no problem. Yeah, yeah. Tampa's actually not not that much further from uh, from Pace, and it's really
3: yeah. Further. I mean, it's only it's only what three and a half hours, and you know, it's, it's a nice nice turf surface and and a uh, good place to start off over
1: yeah yeah it's, it's quiet and it, it's a great like they said they have a great turf surface there and uh i, I was training for mrs there when they were putting it in and um you know they they did it right and and uh you know they have monitors all throughout the the turf that tell you you know where to water it and uh i mean it's it's a it's a really nice surface and it's a quieter place you know it's a little easier to uh to debut a horse but uh yeah we're looking forward to uh, looking forward to seeing you guys uh in the okay. entries, and, and uh, the best of luck. And do you, do you have a website or anywhere people can follow you on social media?
3: Yeah, so I'm on social media. Um, I think I'm think i on Twitter, just Phil Pantanachi. And I uh, don't have a website yet, but, but getting that started up, so if anybody wants to reach out to me, just shoot me a message on Twitter.
1: All right, well, uh, I, again, I appreciate, uh, Phil, I appreciate you coming on. Uh, Jimmy, again, thank you and, and uh, for, for giving us some time, and, uh, you know, best of luck. Um, best of luck in Saratoga, uh, this summer and, uh, um, hopefully, uh, you guys are going to, I, I think you're going to, you're going to do fine. Great. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Right. Thank you very much. Yes, sir. Yeah.
2: Bye.
1: All right. That was, uh, Phil tanucci and, uh, Jimmy Tacker. And it's really kind of, uh. Uh, I think it's an underpublicized story in, in horse racing and thoroughbred racing in that uh you know, these guys are, are, are from um you know, they they've accomplished uh a lot. I mean Phil's family bred uh I believe Lindy Farms has bred five Hambletonian winners. That's like braiding five Kentucky Derby winners. It's it's not an easy task. Um and he certainly has a, a great background with the the Flying Star program and all the the uh, influential trainers that he's worked for and uh, Jimmy, of course, is, is a, a legendary trainer and, um, he's, uh, I mean, there's basically, uh, no stone was, was unturned left unturned for him in, in that business. And, and I guess he's, uh, he certainly looks, sounds like he's, he's interested in, in, in trying to get Phil started and, uh, you know, trying something new. So uh, I do appreciate those guys coming on and, um, we'll follow them and, uh, throughout their career and and maybe have them back on later on this summer to see uh see how they're how they're faring um we're going to go to commercial and we will talk to troy levy from circle eight farm
5: in just a few minutes why in the past decade has brl equine become the premier equine supplement company in the industry because we spend millions in research and development before we ever put out a product Because we use only FDA-supervised facilities to manufacture for us. Because what we say is in them, is in them. Because they work. Because if you're not happy, I'll give you your money back. And because top trainers and veterinarians in thoroughbred racing, standardbred racing, three-day eventing, and barrel racing, all trust in BRL Equine. Shouldn't you? To find out more how Flexify HA Unlocked leader shield and EPO equine can help you contact me joseph Volante,
0: 215-501-6880 this is the going in circles podcast hosted by horseman chuck simon to become a sponsor to suggest topics or for questions email going in circles podcast at gmail.com and log on to our Facebook page, Going in Circles Podcast. Here's your host, Chuck Simon.
1: All right, we're back on Going in Circles live. Uh, it's great to have those guys on, and be interesting to see um, see what they can do. It's it's uh it's an interesting interesting uh, thing to me, especially because I, I guess maybe th- those of us with the that have a a little bit of a a standard bread background would be more intrigued about seeing that. I mean, could you imagine if, if, um, if Bob Baffert, um, decided to train standard breads, (laughs) it would be, uh, uh, it it would be a huge story. Of course, you know, thoroughbreds are a little bit more prominent in this country than, than standard breads. But, um, you know, it's, uh, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be interesting to see how, uh, how things work out for those guys. And, And honestly, uh, they, they, they both are, are, you know, successful people, and, and they probably do great. Um, we've got another thir- uh, former standard Bread guy on the line here. Uh, Troy, how are you doing? Yes. Yeah. Good, Chuck. How are you? Is everything thawed out there in Kentucky? It's starting to. It's starting to, that's for sure. Yeah, you guys Look, have had Our grass is uh...
4: brown. But you know what they say in Kentucky: give it a couple of days, and it'll be green again.
1: <laughs> yeah, the that's the thing about Kentucky: the grass is going to grow. The only place in the state of Kentucky where the grass didn't grow was when I had a house in Louisville, and the front yard was uh, was. <laughs> <laughs> I would always come back from Saratoga, and it'd be yellow, and the neighbors would always give me the side eye because you know uh, they they had these lush lawns, and mine stunk. But um, I never I never claimed to be a, a green thumb. I remember that little house. Yes, that that was a that was a nice little house, right? It uh, was it was it was 10 minutes from the airport. It was 10 minutes from Churchill Downs. It was uh yep. it was it was a cool spot. There was a lot of good places to eat around there as well. Um
4: I I, re- I remember staying there with you and Steve bit pretty much sleeping about 8 minutes every single night. He was up <laughs> studying his uh, his forms and getting ready for his show.
1: <laughs> yeah, Steve generally goes to sleep about 11 and wakes up about 11:45. <laughs> yes, he does. He's just here walking around drinking coffee. And the greatest thing about Steve is when he stays with you, you're going to get a visit every day. Now, you got to remember, this was before the, the heyday of, uh, of Amazon and, and, and people uh, ordering things online um, like people do now. It's like a, a, a daily thing, right? I mean, it's like nobody, everybody orders everything online, and, and it gets shipped to their house. Well, Steve would have every single day we would get uh, a delivery and it would be ink cartridges because he printed out uh, so, much, so much information and PPs and news stories and stuff that that uh, I, I believe he was the uh, the cause for um, at least two-fourths in Brazil being chopped down. <laughs>
4: <laughs> I, I, I will tell you, I've never met anyone who loves queso as much as that guy,
1: that's for sure okay uh, uh El chaparral man he, he's he's, uh, he's made that place he, they, they, matter of fact they should probably sponsor his show he's talked about it so much and put pictures on the internet uh, we went, uh, one day we w- we went there for a, it's, a, it's a little mexican place uh right off bardstown road and a, kind of a nondescript place and and one day we went there for dinner and and, and he fell in love and uh it, it became part of the uh his his annual derby Derby trip or or you know Breeders Cup when it's held there he he always makes it down there and uh, uh that in the place called the Cottage there's a place in Louisville right around the corner from Churchill Downs called the Cottage and and it's got down home Kentucky food and the 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 Marty McGee is famous for for being there for all you can eat Kentucky fry uh, uh, you know fried chicken uh, I think it's those it was fried chicken day and uh, uh, yeah that was another one of the the places we always had to hit at least a couple times but uh but steve is uh he's the, he's the man um so what do you got going on now I, I was funny because we just had jimmy Tatker on and and phil Antonucci and uh you know for you know for the lindy farms fame and yeah those guys are are standardbred guys looking to get into thoroughbred guys and and you kind of uh you kind of did that a long time ago in that you were a standard bred guy um, at a really young age. Um, I, I think Phil said he's 26. So Jimmy kept saying he's young, but I mean, 26 doesn't seem as, as, as young as it used to. And uh, uh, you know, talk about when you first got involved in, in, in racing.
4: Well, I, I think at one time, I, I think my claim to fame was I was the youngest New York State. Uh, standard bread trainer because i believe i got my license on my 18th birthday so um i I was in the game both of us were were in the standard bread game very very young uh but yeah i trained for about seven eight years i did the new york circuit new jersey uh came down to florida and uh, i absolutely just loved uh the standard bread racing game uh sport I i just absolutely loved it and um, you know, had a family, uh, kind of made a, a direct 90 degree turn into the investment world, stayed in there for a, a while. But th- during the time when we were in the standard bread business, all we ever did was watch and just look at the thoroughbreds and really just try to figure out how can we get into the thoroughbred racing game? So I was always part of the thoroughbred racing game, if it was a gambler or just, uh, a, a a, a super fan. So, when I got back uh, into the racing business, I just thought the the upside is in the thoroughbred racing, uh, you, you know, business instead of the standard bread. The, the the upside in the thoroughbred racing business is just absolutely huge. So that that kind of really pushed me towards uh, starting Tropical Racing, AKA Circle Eight Ranch, a, a, and migrated into this this side of the business
1: yeah it's 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 definitely uh i mean standard bread business has has shrunk as i mean thoroughbred business has shrunk as well i mean they both shrunk but um certainly the standard bread business you know the heyday was the sixties um when uh tracks like Roosevelt raceway ha- had as many people going to the races there at night as, as Belmont did uh in the daytime but um yet yeah, th- i mean it's it's still uh i mean they still have their um, you know, their the, the similarities and differences. And it was funny because Jimmy said something about that you had been saying to me for a couple of years now about how standard breeds are more like thoroughbreds. The, they're more refined and, and uh, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a different uh, horse than, than it was years ago.
4: Yeah, you know, amazingly, when you, when you just watch the races, uh, you know, before you could really, you could watch their gait and you would know what a pacer was, you would know what a trotter is. But they're going so fast now, and their legs are moving so fast, and they're getting longer and bigger. It looks like so. It, it just their gait looks like it's 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 changing, and uh, the, the game has really progressed. The, even watching the races in the, in standard reds, you know you know before in the eighties, um, the horses wherever they started, they kind of. Stood there. They stayed there until the top of the stretch, and then you started seeing the movement. Now, it's pretty exciting. You know, horses are making quarter pole moves, half most, three quarter moves. there's a lot of lead changes, and the the, the the game uh, and and the horse really has um, you know moved up the ladder. But the the true difference and why I really, as a business, just absolutely was an awe of the thoroughbred game is you know when you have a great thoroughbred racehorse. You know, you're paying 60, 70 million dollars or selling it for 60, 70 million dollars. worth. The, the best standard bread, I believe, is still, you know, being sold for less than 10 million dollars. So j- just the upside and for the economic reasons, I, I, the thoroughbred game is just, you know, is why I believe we're all here.
1: Yeah, no no doubt. I mean, the one difference, uh, you know, one big difference between standard breads and thoroughbreds uh, is, is on the breeding side where thoroughbreds are still doing live cover, meaning the stallion still does his job with the, each mare, where the standard breads are, are, are using and have been using for a long time now um, artificial insemination so that, the, right. you know, you, you don't actually have to have the two parties there to do the act. Um, and, and as such, I mean, sometimes you see like these sire stake races in the States where the the state bred programs are not quite as strong as they used to be, like um, especially in New Jersey, um, where you'll see a, you'll you'll have a sire state race and and every single horse will be by the same stallion. And, I mean that's <laughs> yeah. just that's just not something that you see in thoroughbreds, uh, uh, you know, you know, pretty much ever. And and it's interesting because uh, you know I led up the show today talking about the news of the morning was the lawsuit. Um, by a couple of the prominent farms against the jockey club for their attempt to restrict stallions to one hundred and forty mares um and I, i'm i'm imagining that's going to be the the big news in Kentucky now that the uh, the uh, historical horse racing uh bill has been passed into law and, and that bout that that uh, bullet's been dodged um you know yeah. what, what are your thoughts on that
4: you know as you know the the breeders. I could definitely see their point. You, you know this, and like any business, you're trying to capitalize and and make as much money as possible. Um, you know without really hurting the product. Um, more importantly, as we always talk about, you know the super trainers and the and and big business. I really believe. Um, there's something that's not spoken about that that's a a bigger part for me at least in this lawsuit is as an owner and as an operation really getting in to the uh, breeding operation if we do have that next justify and if we do have that that next great stallion what, what is the value now going to be put on that horse when it can't breed to 180 and 200 horses a year, or all of a sudden the value of the stallions are going to go down, which again trickles down to the individual owners, which, in any industry, is truly what we're, we're supposed to take care of. So, um, that's what I'm a little concerned of. Not so much how much money the the big operations are going to make. But as the individual owners, what's the new valuation of stallions? As we just did see stallion prices go down, and we know that's from the pandemic. But, you know, it's kind of now also when I breed or when other people are going to start breeding, if we can't, let's say, intermission is now going to 140 instead of 200, just for example, or whatever that number is, is that going to push other smaller, Breeders down to the third tier stallions instead of the second tier stallions. So I think there's a lot of repercussions inside this lawsuit that's not spoken about as a whole in the industry, and I'd like to see how that plays out.
1: I think I think um, you know, reading uh, B. Wayne Hughes' statement, I think this was to me the the thing that caught my eye and, and kind of made me um, reevaluate, and that's. Um, His quote is, I'll read the quote, quote, if they can limit the number to 140, what's stopping them from limiting it to 100 or 80 or any other number down the road? What if your mare isn't one of the 140? And then he said, we're really concerned about the smaller breeders' ability to survive this, which, (coughs) I mean, I got to be honest, uh, doesn't seem that that is really going to be the the, the issue because there's not a lot of small breeders that are going to be breeding into mischief because, uh if you really i have yeah, mares yeah, of that to yeah if you have mares of that quality you probably have more than a couple but um, yeah I,
4: I remember talking to Spendriff uh, th- this year and not only is endomestria's book is is completely sold but you know they, they said whatever the number w- he could physically do <laughs> right. they would be able to get enough mares to pay <laughs> for him I you remember. know so they're limiting him himself in the industry just because, you know, there is just a number that you just can't go above. So, but, but, you know, again, the whole trickle-down effect, right, is because now the standard of each breeding and each horse, it, you know, we could start truly breeding slower horses, right? Like the third and the fourth-tier stallions are truly proven that they might have a great horse, but they're not having – Many good horses, and now all of a sudden, are the races going to truly start being non-competitive with not being able to breed more horses to the top stallion?
1: Yeah, that uh, you know, I think more than just even the global look of how it affects the breed, because a lot of people people say all kinds of stupid stuff about oh the breed this, the breed that, the breed this, the breed that, and and a lot of it is like, um. I'm not a geneticist, but, I mean, the fact of the matter is most stallions fail. Most stallions aren't any good. It doesn't matter what their credentials are. It doesn't matter what their pedigree is. doesn't matter what their race record is. doesn't matter uh, you know, how great their babies look. In the end, 9 out of 10 stallions don't become successful stallions. So it's a lot of guesswork. But I think the point that he's making about what's to stop them from making it 100 or 80, there's another part about that as well. I think about what's to stop them from saying, um we want uh we're we 're we're not going to allow stallions in the stud book that don't have ten lifetime starts or a horse that was found to bleed more than twice um you know you can 't breed that mare or or what you know so so the the ability to put restrictions in not saying that, that that's that 's what they're going to do but the this lawsuit if it it's it it's it's not uh successful you know might allow that to happen and i think with the whip rules and with the LASIKs changes that we've shown that this business suddenly is willing to do things to bow to political pressure even if that political pressure is going to cause um material harm to our business because you you have a hard time convincing me that taking LASIKs away is going to Make the business more profitable. It seems like it's going to make it less profitable in the end, and when you know, taking all the things into consideration and the whip rules, especially um, because I don't know a lot of people who invest a lot of money in this business, whether it be via uh, breeding, whether it be owning horses, whether it be betting on horses. Um, I don't know a lot of people that have walked away because horses um, are being struck with the whip 11 times instead of six times. And maybe that's simplifying a little bit, but, uh, you know, like look down the line and, and, and what's to say that, uh, further restrictions aren't, aren't put out there. And I mean, the number of, of really great horses that were produced by mares that were unraced or didn't have much of a race record is, is long and lengthy. Um,
4: Oh yeah. I had numerous conversations uh in regards that and i i'm a i'm a pretty firm believer that uh and again this is just you know my 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 thought is that a lot of race mares that have not raced you know kind of left the races in them you know they they weren't burnt out they didn't leave everything on the track so that they're able you know their talent is able to pass along to the next generation You know, and you just look at some of these, the greatest, you know, race mares in the history of this game. And there's not too many of them that produced the same quality racehorse that they were. And, 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 you know, I just, I, I believe that, like you said, that there is that ability and the same with stallions, you know, sometimes those stallions, their race careers are short, and it's it, and it could potentially and, and probably it's an economic reason why they are, because the breeding business is is so vast that why take the chance to put another figure up when you can go to the breeding shed and there's enough people that have confidence to go ahead and breed to that horse.
1: True. Yeah. That, that's 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 true. And, I mean, the one thing about breeding is that it's such an inexact science in in so many ways. In that, uh, like it's funny because we talk about into mischief uh, on this show a lot every week we recap the stakes and it's like you know, there's another <laughs> yeah, into mischief yeah, yeah. another into mischief another into mischief it's like every week he, he just gets you know he gets graded stake winners so much but even him he he still has like 91 percent of his horses or 89 percent of his horses are not stake winners so it it's like um the you know looking at it at it from uh uh, you know the point of view from um, h- how hard it is to get a really good horse, uh, and, and how inexact that science is, and, and that um, you know John Henry was by old Bob Bowers out of uh, you know some some old mare, and he made five million dollars. Uh, shared belief, California Chrome, uh, Point Given, and these are just ones I'm you know picking off the top of my head. We're all out of mares yeah. that they, they couldn't win a maiden ten so um you know or or didn't even race so it's it's um it's tough to try to really put too many restrictions on breeding and i I mean when you look at the numbers and i understand people's consternation at at horses breeding 200 mares or 220 mares and and uh, like i said to you you know we talked about this before off the air and if I was given the, the the power to make all the rules and and you know be above being sued and all that and, and say all right Chuck do make the best business that you can uh, make the best racing industry you can I would probably restrict stallions to to less than a hundred four I, I would probably make it a hundred um but but that's not really fair uh, on my point to the people that own the stallion, the people that have invested in the stallion, the shareholders of the stallion and, and and other the other thing is the people that want to breed to that stallion. Um I I it, it's not exactly fair and and maybe in the long run that would be better, but maybe it wouldn't be better as well. I mean because that's the other thing is is we also we always, you know, say, well, it it would be better if this or that happened or this happened. Well, that's not always the case. Sometimes um, you know, unintended consequences, you know. Yeah.
4: And, and you know, like you said, it, it it definitely makes sense. The 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 problem, like you said, that there's if there's going to be a line in the sand, it it it, need, it needs to give the industry enough time to prepare and get ready for that line in the sand. But there should also be some sort of financial um, backing to the decision making, or some sort of scientific backing, saying, hey. This is the reasoning why we're doing this. And this is where we feel that the game is going to head and it's going to get better. Bef- besides just going ahead and, and it seems like the industry in whole always just makes decisions just because, like you said, there's an outside source, uh, people complaining about something, and they're just doing it for the public view instead of truly for the game itself. Because that, that's why we're all here is for this game and that's why they're working. So if we're going to do something to make the game better – we we should do it all together, and at the same time, we should we should be able to give uh, enough information for everyone to feel that we're doing something together to make the industry better.
1: No, no, that, that that's very well said, and and I think that uh you know we have a lot of knee jerk in our society. Um, something happens, and everybody's got an opinion like immediately. Even though a lot of yeah. times they don't even know, they don't have the full story. It's, they've already decided what they're going to decide. Um, and you
4: got to if- love social media, right? That
1: changed <laughs>
4: That changed everything. Years ago, we were ready to start a world war and the president would take three, four days before he went out you know, and, and, and discuss it with the public. Now, if something happens, the president has to be out on the the public view within seconds or he doesn't care. So... It, it, it's unfortunately the, the the new media that we that we live in.
1: It's it's so true, and and uh, I mean, so uh, social media is is a boon for horse racing, and it, and it kills horse racing at times. In that, some of the bad takes out there um, on who's giving their horses illegal drugs and who is not, and 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 just. Uh, complaints like the constant barrage of complaints. I mean we aren't two people who aren't uh haven't been in, you know we've been in this business pretty much our whole lives. So we're cognizant of all the issues that it, exist in racing. I mean it's not that um we're 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 head in the sand people and and we're going to um you know say oh everything's great, everything's great, everything everything's not great. There's a lot of issues, but there's a lot of issues in everything and 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 some of it uh just gets hyper focused on on um you know uh, uh, uh this is bad this is bad, this is bad this is bad, this is bad and and you know like sometimes people are decided uh, it, it's decided this person is a bad person, this person is a good person, and it's not based upon anything other than um what people believe to be true and and, it, and it's like it's not like the, the there's there's evidence that this is a bad guy and this is not a bad guy, but that's that's what happens in social media. Uh, is a powerful powerful thing and and I mean you saw how how um you know it's it's it seeped into like politics uh, you know real life kind of things where where just outrageous statements are made and and then they're retracted and then oh i didn 't say that or I got hacked and i mean in horse racing there are some really good things uh about social media uh in that you're made aware of um opportunities you're, you're you know, Sometimes you're able to see races from all over the world, get like the drop of a hat. You know, They run the race, and two minutes later, you're, you're able to see it. Um, a lot of great friendships have been made. There's been a lot of people from from different areas with different interests, and I know a lot of guys that have met on Twitter or Facebook that have met up at the races and become you know friends, and a bunch of people, like Barry Spears and I. Barry does the Monday show. I mean, we've become yeah. friends, and, and we met on social media, and, and then we found out that... Uh, you know, we had actually run in, 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 in some in similar circles and, and we knew some of the same people and I mean we would have probably never met and become friends had we not had social media. Uh and, and just this, being able to do this right now, um, you know, twenty years ago, uh I would have had to get airtime on a radio station um you know and, and the only available time would have been you know like three o'clock in the morning, you know, so like, just being able to do this and and uh it's funny because you know people say, "Ah oh, there's eighteen million podcasts and blah 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 and it, which is true, but I mean the fact of the matter is that there are there are a lot of uh ways that we're getting information to people uh good, better, and different that that social media brings um but there is the you know of course the down the downside when uh and this is one of the things that I've preached about and people are probably sick of hearing it, but when a horse breaks down at, uh, you know, um, Yakima Meadows or someplace that no one really pays attention to, it's put on social media right away and you have to see that. And that's one of the downsides in that we're getting information that wouldn't have been out there. And it's not that we shouldn't care. I mean, of course we we care and, and we don't want to see that happen to any horse at all. But it's also like if you put every single car accident um out there and and any incident of pain and suffering that anyone has, I and mean, there's three hundred thirty million people live in this world. So
0: oh, yeah. There's lots of
1: bad stuff, and if it's just bad, bad, bad. And there's people that are enemies of our game that are going to try to do whatever they can to put us in a bad light. And God forbid a horse in a major race um has an accident because that's going to get plastered on social media time and time and time again, and they're going to use it to raise funds against us, and which which is you know even even worse and yeah. That, that and, that's and you know what downside. the
4: shame of it? it is like, and even you, you, you you know a lot of times the unfortunate part of a horse, let's say, ha- have to being put down. It's not solely because of. a a catastrophic injury, it it could be like us rolling our ankle in a basketball game. The only difference is we can't have that animal stand still for four weeks or five weeks or sitting in a cast and not injure himself more and or do other damages, which, you know, people who might not know the the game, but like laminitis and and foundering and, and things like that, that we put the horse in more harm's way of not doing the humane thing putting him down and that can never be explained on social media and people won't accept that in social media unless you are truly in this circle in this racehorse game and and, and that's really the shame again of the social media and the people jumping on certain bandwagons And, and you know not going into life but people love the negativity people love to go ahead and put fuel on the fire even if they don't even believe them in themselves. They just like to do that because they want to be social media is that group, right? The group thing. I want to be part of something. I want to be I want to be famous. I want to go ahead and I want to be outspoken. You know, if if this person says this and he gets seven thousand likes, I'm gonna say I'm gonna I'm gonna step it up tenfold so I get nine thousand likes. And if I don't do that then I'm gonna hide and cry and do something else. So it, it it's really you know, we, we got to take everything as a grain of salt. And, you know, you have been in this game as long, it, longer than I, I, I believe, or pretty close to it. And you know the amount of care that we put into these horses on a daily basis. And I got to believe there's not one person, well, I don't want to say one, maybe there is one, but there's not many people that would ever knowingly put a horse in jeopardy to go ahead and have that injury during a race. It, it, it's it's just not feasible.
1: No, and, and even less now. And and you know, you can make broad. You, you paint with broad strokes, and, and sometimes you um, you make. You know, we 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 all can make generalizations, and we can all oversimplify things. But like you said, the vast majority of people are are, are not that type of people, and, and wouldn't do that. That doesn't mean there aren't people that would do that. That is one of the biggest yeah. problems I, I had um, with, with with some trainers who consistently uh, get in, themselves in trouble. Um, you know, Marcus Vitale, his record is so long, and and, and you know when um, you know he, he's trying to sneak back in tracks and he's trying to run under other people's names, it makes us all look bad when that happens and the sad thing is that that that's not the 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 norm that that's the that's the that's the exception and um in racing when uh, there's a guy a guy gets a positive test and like the 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 degree of positive test the 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 variance between a guy who's absolutely positively trying to cheat to win a race and a guy who has one nanogram of some medication that that had zero influence on the horse uh at all you know, it, it it all counts. It, it looks is sinister either way on on the on the, the the screen. You know, when you look at it and say, "Oh, this guy got a positive." Oh, this guy. You know, I told you this guy's no good, and blah blah blah. And then they try to start, you know, putting things together, and 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 a lot of that too, Troy. And and you know, we've been both on on uh, the boards of horsemen's organizations. Um, and the one thing about like me, I was never really that interested in being on a horsemen's organization, and I'm, I'm actually glad that I was involved because. I got to to peel the layers of the onion back a little bit. And one thing you you learn when you're on the horseman's organization is you're you're seeing a little bit uh, peering more into the mechanics of, of how things are done and how things are run and why things are like they are. And uh, I mean, I had a little bit of that when I worked at Yonkers, but that was, you know, that was a different era. That was 1990. And I mean, we were racing eight eight cards a week. (laughs) you know we, we were filling 88 races a week and, and and if and if we had a race with 7 instead of 8 management went nuts um oh, yeah but uh it, it's just uh, you know like things have evolved so so much differently i was talking to Barry last night about when i was at the university of arizona a guy came in and they we had a great and they still do i think have a speaker uh, like a monthly speaker comes in from certain part of the industry and 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 kind of tells his story and 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 gives people uh, a, a, a an insider's view of, of of what really happens. And the guy came in and I think he was from one of the um, uh, America's uh, the uh, I don't remember what he was from. He was from one of the organizations that uh, like the maybe maybe the one that was in charge the um, uh, heart of the horse racing tracks of America. One of those and and his his comment to us one day and now this was kind of like off the wall because he said to us and got to remember this is like 1989 he goes the biggest threat to american horse racing is indian gaming and now at the time we had no idea what indian gaming was we didn't know if that meant like Uh, you know, like like, like what it was because there was no Indian in in, in our, in our world. Like there was casinos existed in Atlantic city and in Las Vegas. That's it. There was no other casinos and we didn't really know what that meant. Like when he was talking about it and he started explaining the Indian, uh, the native Americans aren't privy to, the federal laws that, that everyone else is because of of course their treatment and, and you know the way they were what? abused and, 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 and marginalized. So, you know, in order to give them back they, they, they're allowed uh, you know they're they're allowed to, to have gaming. Um and at the time it just seemed like wow this guy's kind of nuts, you know, like Indian gaming. Like, like what's that got to do with with uh, you know Saratoga and Keeneland and, and you know Santa Anita? And, and as it turns out, he, he was right, but he wasn't right all the way because right. not only did was there Native American casinos, then there was regular casinos, then there was casinos at the track, and now we're into um, allowing sports betting. So the, the the land has you know the landscape has shifted from uh, you know race tracks, lottery, and Vegas and Atlantic City to. <laughs> You got guys putting parlays in on how many three pointers Russell Westbrook will hit, and, 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 and you know, parlayed into how many uh, you know points Purdue's going to score tonight versus uh, some MMA fighter. How many rounds? I mean, it's crazy the the um, you know the ability to bet online. I mean, there was no online at that point, so we didn't know what online was. But um, I mean, racing faces this uh, this huge challenge of uh, staying relevant in a world that's kind of going crazy for gambling. Yeah.
4: Which, you know, is a positive also where it, what, you know, sooner or later, you know, uh, the, the racing industry is going to be able to hopefully figure out how to join everybody instead of competing, you know, let's say, um, you know, I know, there's there's shown that there are um, statistics, you know, that people betting on sports at racetracks will start gambling on horses just because they're waiting between quarters or halves or, or what have you. So I, I just think it's like anything else. We just, you know, the industry has changed just like social media has changed. The, our industry just got to, you know, got to change with it. And we got to figure out how to tap into the younger mentality, you know, these gamers, uh, you know, what, what, what I, the, the other day I was talking to a, a gaming company. a matter of fact, you introduced me, Tom. And, um, and then I was talking to someone else who was a, a, a gamer programmer. And there's video games that these guys play in these big platforms with thousands of people watching them that they go into like an OTB parlor and bet on racehorses. Simulcast virtual reality uh, horse races in their video games, and you you bet fake money, of course. But it's amazing how many young people truly go into these rooms to, to watch horse races. So there there is a a whole avenue, a whole group of people that are truly still on tap to get to get into this racing game. And as we see, you know that any time. Anybody who's young that starts making money, especially in the Wall Street and the the hedge funds, the first thing they do uh, after they buy their cars and their houses is somehow migrate into the racing industry. There's no better feeling in the world than to have these horses run, even just watching them. And then, you know, winning is just a whole completely different level. But then, of course, there's the level getting onto the Breeders' Cup, getting into the Derby Trail. You know the the amount of um, money and thrill and excitement that that, that comes with that, It's it's just never going to end. And and I know we're never supposed to say that word never, but there's just there's just so much money in this world. We just gotta you know go ahead and 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 bring them in and bring them in the right way. And that's why I don't know if it's a good segment to to go turn a little bit. But that's why you and I have started talking and. You know, going through you know, Circle Eight Ranch is podcast. You and I are going to start working on a uh, by you know, bi monthly or you know, twice a month, and, and really start bootstrapping and start teaching people the, the the game. There's no you know, two people better like I, I believe you and I that have been from every aspect. Grooms, you are <laughs> you are assistant uh, racing secretary you know, trainers, I drove in races, you, you are a hot walker, assistant trainer, trainer, went all over, worked for the best people, that, that there's so much to learn in this industry. And I believe if we go ahead and bring people along that journey, that they'll feel the same way that we feel in the racing industry. And sooner or later, you know, hopefully they start going ahead and figuring it out how to get into the racing industry, which is our ultimate goal. All of us, everyone, you know, competing and participating in this racing industry. You you know, uh, I I was asked the other day about, you know, who's our competitors? And, you know, I really put a lot of thought into it, and it's really not an individual. It's not really the companies. Our competitors are the horses competing against each other because, you know, if you think about it, our competitors to, to, let's say, the individual owners, our competitors sooner or later become our partners. And that's what's really cool about this industry. So I, I, I really, you know, look forward to doing this with you.
1: Yeah, that it's uh we're gonna do it every other week and we have a, you know a lot of good ideas that that uh about teaching people about the business and uh there's so many different um you know facets to it, but the one thing about racing is that Um, We, as a business, have done a really poor job over the last uh, few decades of getting people there, just getting them there, because um, it's very hard, and I've been a big proponent of this for a long time. It's very hard to get a person that's not just strictly, um, uh, you know, has already has a gambling background. You could get them into racing via simulcasting or whatever, but a lot of people... Uh, you know they they need to get to the races and and kind of see the excitement and and have uh, you know feel the 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 see the horses themselves and see how fast they are and how big they are and and you know kind of the the pageantry of it all and you know that that's that doesn't uh, we're not disrespecting betters at all because betters are are the lifeblood of the sport but a lot of times you got to get people there first and yep. you can develop them into. Uh, different areas, and and there's been a lot of you know talk on social media about you know do fans matter? Do this that? Well, you know, I don't want to like put percentages and say well betters are 58 percent of the business and owners are 37 percent and the fan like it, it, we all need we, we need every facet of of the business. We um, it's great to have uh, the big meets uh, Saratoga Keeneland Delmar. Um, where where we get a lot of people get get out to the races, the big event days, the Derby, the Preakness, the Triple Crown, the Breeders' Cup. I mean, it 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 keeps us um uh, it keeps that sporting aspect of our game alive, and it's not just uh the numbers, betting numbers. Because when when you look at a card at parks on a Tuesday afternoon, it's not there's not a whole lot of sporting aspect to that. Yeah, the jockeys are great athletes. The horses are even better athletes. But in the end, it's just kind of a monotonous gambling vehicle, which is great when you are betting on it and you're doing well and 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 you know you're you're you're, you're finding opportunities. But there's also a, a room, you know, for for the uh, for the other end. And I think one of the industry's issues is that we spend way too much of our assets and our our, our marketing dollars on those people and i think that's where the gambler says hey like you're spending all your money trying to get people who wear bow ties to the races those guys are going to come out they're going to spend some bucks they're going to buy a couple of cigars they're going to drink some beer and or eat some food but then they might not come back till the next month or the next year but, you know what about us i'm there on a on a on a thursday grinding it out you know putting my money up and you guys don't do anything for me and and i think that's one of the issues that the business has not allocated its resources well in, in that area. But, you know, in the end, um, you know, the, the races that get the press, that get on, on national TV, um, the highlights, the, the things that, that the media, the mainstream sports media will still cover uh, are the Breeders' Cup and the Triple Crown and, and those kind of races. Because, I mean, it used to be every, every town, every racing town had a, had a racing rider. And now, oh, yeah? I, I don't believe any, um, I think maybe Lexington does, uh, but I don't believe any, um, th- there's any real, you know, full-time turf writers at all. And of course the newspaper business is, 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 you know, they've had their own issues as well. I mean, the, the, that's a business that that's kind of falling behind the times. Um, but, uh. You know, there's, there's a lot of things I think that, um, you know, we, we can pr- promote the positives because on this show, a lot of times, we, we talk about negatives. We talk about the problems of the business, of how, how do we solve this, the jockey whip issue, the LASIKs rule, of, you know, take the you know bad disqualifications, uh, uh, positives. Whoa. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> Is that the Wicked Witch of the North? <laughs> can
4: I believe that? <laughs> My front door. <laughs> i think i need some w well, nobody ww 40
1: no nobody will be sneaking in your house um <laughs> but you no know, I, I i know i'm really looking forward to it and, and uh you know we'll make an announcement here in a in a couple days about uh what the schedule is going to be and uh we'll have some guests and and talk about like Absolutely. you know stuff that you're doing out with your own horses and and uh you guys got some brood mares and you got some sure you got some babies being born and Um, You know, we
4: we just had five babies so Mm -hmm. far, and uh, we have uh, four more to go this year.
1: That's pretty good by this time of the year. Yeah,
4: yeah, we get. uh, Well, you know, we are young in the business, so our our, uh, a lot of our mares are maiden mares. So we, you know, we're able to breed a little earlier uh, than than most. So Uh, now we have a little hiatus now. To uh, we have one one's going to be born in the middle of March and then everything in the first week or so in in April. And uh it's going to be it's going to be a, a very busy year cuz we're going to be breeding 17 uh this year too. So n- next year is going to be uh <laughs> going to be a real trying time and uh and uh, you know with with with, with the breeding uh, you know falling season but uh, it, it, it 's fun, but absolutely i I think we have a lot to talk about and you know talk, talking about the negatives you know sometimes you have to talk about the negatives to get to the positive, you know so sometimes you have to go ahead and you, you know you and I had these conversations before you know sometimes you got to rip something apart. It, 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 you know t- till you can't rip it apart anymore and then you finally come get to the bottom and then you could rebuild it and you know head into a different direction you know uh, the the industry is always called the sport of kings and and i think you know there there's a lot of people still in this industry that believes you know that the sport of kings you know is just on this mantelpiece and we don't have to do anything um And it's always going to, you know, grow and be the most popular sport, Um, you know, because we're up there as, you know, when you break down the numbers of other sports, we're we're right there with everybody else. You know, it's a huge industry. We just got to go ahead and, you know, bring it into the modern times, you know, give it that little facelift, bring in the new clientele and whatever direction that is. And I agree with you, the, the betters. We absolutely have to figure out a way, this industry, to go ahead and take care of the betters in a much better way that each individual track has not currently been doing. And then at the same time, you know, you talked about fans in anything. You only need one. So if, if, it doesn't matter how many people that walk through that turnstile and go to the races if we can go ahead as an industry and convert one and you know at a time and make him maybe a gambler or you know a, a someone who likes to bet on the industry or a horse owner we already you know are turning the corner so it, 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 everyone's always worried in business that we have to get x percentage we have to like you you were saying everything's a percentage no It's not a percentage. If we just grow it slowly and one at a time and one at a time, you never know who that one person is and how many that person brings in and how many horses he's going to buy. You you know, all of a sudden, you know, you hear of this name. No one knows who it is. And then all of a sudden you find out that he owns 80 horses and he just bought, you know, a 500-acre farm and now he's breeding. And all of a sudden he's taking a huge part of the industry and bringing it to the next level. So, you know, I, I think it's a really good time, one to get into the industry, the purses are exploding in a, in a, in a lot of locations which you and I am sure are going to talk about numerous times over. You know, the safety of, of the horses are getting better. The horses are getting, you know, faster, the purse structures uh you, you know are are going very well. So, uh, yeah, I'm really excited for us to, to to start working together on this project.
1: Yeah, it'll, it'll be it'll be a good time and uh like I said, we'll we'll have some uh, details about that forthcoming in a couple of days got a couple of other projects I'm working on um as well but um yeah it it'll be a, it'll be a good thing and uh you know the one thing about the podcasts are that uh unlike um you know live television or or even radio uh, you know you can play them whenever you're you're you need to play them and you can stop them and and, and fast forward them whenever uh you know you, you know you you, you have the the time to do it, and and that's the one you know real big positive about podcasts is you know versus you know live shows, and this show is live now, but um you know most of our our downloads are not you know from the live show they're they're taped um this show taped so you know it's it's a good way to get get a hold of people and uh, you know kind of uh, you know put some information on the website and, and do do things like that, and uh, you know people have questions and, and th- that's the one barrier. That I think social media can help with in racing is that um I often get questions from people sometimes having nothing to do with anything I'm talking about on the show, just that hey you 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 know uh I really can you answer this question for me? I'm really not sure I'm really not sure where to where you know where to go to, and I don't want to say it on so <laughs> on Twitter or, or Facebook because people think I'm stupid and and a lot of times they are they're actually you know valid questions so um, that's been an issue in horse racing and that there there hasn't been a real great um central location to ask uh to ask a lot of uh, of questions that, that people might have that they might think are stupid but they're actually good questions uh sometimes you know the even uh for people that are owners or people that have been in the game for a long time the licensing questions and um you know when when you're in a partnership in uh, some yeah. states you know if you own any percentage you have to be licensed even in the partnership even if there's twelve other people even if the the main partner is is the the, the primary and other states you don't in other states there's five percent I mean there's so many different variables um that uh yeah mean people often have questions and, and nobody likes to look dumb you know yeah. so um it's it's uh I mean. Well, you know, it happens to me a lot because I'm on the because I'm on the air and I say stupid stuff, but but um but I I'm, I'm used to it by now. But uh no it is it's a it's a good uh you know, I think it'll be a good thing and um uh, and I think the, the every other week'll will, will will give us enough time to, you know, cover a lot of different areas um without, you know, kind of overexposing it as well.
4: Yeah. And uh you know, I am heading down to Florida this week and uh
1: so you better when I, not, when I get there, don't, don't bring we'll, any we'll, we'll, don't bring any snow with you.
4: No, you know, believe it. Or not, you know, so how crazy the weather's here? It, it, it's like in the fifties today.
1: I know it's it's so it's so, it's so crazy. It,
4: it, it was it, it, two days ago. It was one degree when uh, I woke up. Yeah, so this, it, this it, morning. This morning, it's in the fifties.
1: This morning, about seven o'clock, I got the the my daily Carlo Vecareza weather report from Kentucky i'll generally get it's 52 can you believe it it was only two the other day (laughs) i was like yeah don't put your jacket away yet (laughs) it's
4: not over yet it might be be 14 i I remember yeah I i was saying that you know i remember i don't even it was like september and it was like 20 degrees you know like it was it was 70 the night before, you know, that day. The next day, you're sitting there chiseling out water pails. It was like, what is going on here?
1: The day Sunday Silence won the Kentucky Derby, it was like 30 degrees that morning. <laughs> this is in May. And then, you know, like two days later, it's 75. And then people wonder, why is everyone sick? Yeah, uh, yeah. But now Kentucky is funny. I, I worked for Nick Zito once, one, one spring. And we left Gulfstream, and Nick loved Keeneland. I mean, he this was in, he was in his heyday. Um, we had a couple derby horses that year. Um, and we got to Keeneland, we had 40 horses. And within, like, three days, everybody got sick. Like, everybody got sick because they went from the warm to the cold, and then it got cold and it was hot. And, and you know, the weather kept changing like it does in, in, in April and October when Keeneland's running. And... We literally had, like, two grooms, like one hot walker, two riders, <laughs> and, <laughs> and Nick's like, ah, get him out. <laughs> like, <laughs> how many sets do you want to do? I'll try to do them all. It's like, Nick. We got forty horses and two riders. That's twenty sets. <laughs> you know, like the, We're gonna have to. We're gonna have to do them. Uh, you know, they're gonna have to go out there. Go <laughs> once back, and come back. To... Oh man, it was. It was. Uh, the only other time I was ever in a barn when we were anything like it was. Uh, I was working for Wayne Lucas, and this was a long time ago. Um, and it was funny. George Weaver was the assistant. Todd Pletcher was. Uh, Todd Pl- Todd Pletcher was the assistant. George Weaver was the foreman. And, um, the immigration had come in that night in the middle of the night and, you know, caused the big ruckus at Belmont. And I got in and I got there, like, you know, I mean, they start in the middle of the night. I got there like 10 minutes to five and like the place was empty. And I, I said to George, I said, George, what's going on? And he's like, yeah, <laughs> INS came in and we don't know where anybody is. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was 46 horses in the. It it was, it was, uh, there was like three of us trying to, uh, and Jeff Lucas was the assist the head assistant at the time. Um, and Jeff was like, well, you know, what are we going to do, Jeff? We're going to train. I was like, how (laughs) just, (laughs) just start getting them out. (laughs) And of course, you know, every horse had poultice on every horse had four bandages on. So, (laughs) you know, you're having to take them that it was, it was, uh, it was a long day. That was for sure. But, uh, yeah, but those days uh, and these days, if I if I if I tried to bend down and take one horse's band set of banders off, I'd probably oh, come probably, on, come probably, on. I'd probably injure myself in some way, shape, or form.
4: Come on, I, I. You always tell me you're going on the basketball court and shooting baskets, and
1: COVID, COVID you, you, got me. You, 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 I I haven't played in a year, <laughs> literally. I I haven't played in a year because a guy challenged me a couple of weeks ago the three point sh- shooters, and I'm like, dude, I I can't. This would be like stealing money. And the guy's a little shrimp too. He's he's like five foot two, so um, you know he's like, he's like ugh, yeah, he wishes he was Spud Web, and and he's like <laughs> oh we'll shoot three pointers. I'm like come on man, come on. I I haven't even played in a year because I used to go play a lot, but then COVID happened and and the uh, you know like everything stopped and unfortunately <laughs> the only thing that hasn't <laughs> didn't stop was was me gaining weight so. <laughs> I don't think we'll uh, I don't I don't think I'll have many comebacks lately. Uh it's probably not going to happen. But um I know the feeling, believe me. Uh anyways, listen, uh thank you for Well, thank you very much. Coming I, on I truly
4: appreciate it. I had a great time and you know, I, I do want to say that uh, I listen to your show all the time and I I really do enjoy it. You do a
1: a, a great job, all believe right, when, me. When you get here, I'll give you the I'll give you the check for saying that. Yeah. Uh, hey, we got have to. We got go to go at the Pompano because it doesn't look like Pompano is going to be around much longer. Uh, I, I
4: sent you. I sent you the article, so because uh, I know we were talking about it the night before. But you know what? What be, you know? It could be a great idea to do our kickoff show at Pompano.
1: At the Pomp. That's 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 actually <laughs> a good idea. We'll talk to Gabe. See if he can't find this uh, an abandoned section of the abandoned grandstand. Uh, yeah, that <laughs> maybe would be fun. We'll do something out there. Maybe we can book Joe Sinzeri and Annie Santaramo and the boys to come on and give us some tips. Uh, as a matter of fact, as we've been on since you've been on, uh, the sh- came on the show a little while ago. Churchill made the official announcement that they are putting Arlington Park on the market. Uh, they're trying to sell it, and came out with um, a quote that uh, I think. Maybe someone's nose might grow, and that they're going to try to relocate the um, <laughs> the, the racing million. there. No, the the, the racing uh, license. Though I mean, we all know in this day and age, a racing license not attached to a alternate gaming license is not going to be a go. It's just not going to happen. No one's going to build a racetrack just for racing. It's it's just economically not feasible. So, you know, it looks like, I mean, and, and Arlington, I mean, the, the the handwriting has been on the wall since Churchill decided uh, last year that they weren't going to pursue a casino license that they had spent the last nine years uh, actively pursuing. <laughs> so once they decided they weren't going to go uh, to try to get the casino license for Arlington, uh, that essentially sealed the fate there. And it's just been a matter of time. And I guess it's now official that they're going to sell, and this is probably going to be the last meet at Arlington coming up uh, this summer. So if you if you haven't been there, have you ever been to Arlington? No, you, 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 got, you I, got. I heard it. it's
4: absolutely beautiful. You know, I, I'm I'm gonna make I'm gonna make a point to 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 go there this year. Yeah, you you, you really, know, you really have I, to. I, I, it's it's a you beautiful town. I, I I was kind of like a, a fly on the wall in, in a, a meeting um, not too long ago where I believe that there were some high end officials that worked for that company that you just mentioned that was saying that they were not going to (laughs) do anything with Arlington, that they were going to make, you know, have a real go that they felt it was very important to keep racing there. it's very, very surprised.
1: You know, I I get that, um, you're working for a big corporation and, and that sometimes, uh, they're not going to be that forthcoming with their future plans, but, uh, it, you didn't have to be a genius to see what was going to happen at, at, uh, at Calder once that, um, you know, the, the fate seemed to be sealed there. Um, and, and as far as we know that that's, you know, going to be no longer with us. And, uh, Arlington, it's the same same situation. And I mean, Churchill did this to Hollywood Park. Um, yeah, they they would have done it to Hoosier had the the harness interests not not got involved in and uh, you know bought Hoosier uh, and kept that racing. Even though I've barred Hoosier for life, I can I will never bet there again because I cannot win. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing against Hoosier, but I cannot win at that place. But um, that, that
4: that that track is very difficult oh, to figure out.
1: Oh man, it's it, it's brutal. But um,
4: I remember I remember back in the day, all you had to do was bet uh, Dave Harmon, right? Yeah. There,
1: and you, you know, pretty much you won every single race. But, but that was years ago. Trace Tietrich and John DeLong, and I mean, listen, I've been pretty good horses there. I just can't win. But uh, but Arlington, I, I spent two summers in Arlington, I think 2010 and 2011, uh, or thereabouts. And uh, honestly, it, they were really it was a fun place. To train and, and go to the races and the area surrounding it is great. And Chicago is a great city in the summer. The winter, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm gonna pass. Nah, I'm gonna pass on Chicago in the winter because the, 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 you know you see scenes from there and it looks like uh, Alaska. But um,
4: yeah, it, it, it is terrible. But the, I'm definitely going to the gonna paddock, make point of, of of going this summer. That's when you for sure.
1: when you go in the paddock, it, it's just like a majestic view of the of the grandstand and uh, it's just a great place to have the. Uh, up at the top of the stretch, they have a bunch of, of, uh, like a lawn area and they would have Fridays would be twilight racing and they would have the family days and there'd be millions of people there. And it was just a great track in the Arlington million. Uh, my mom and dad came out one year for the Arlington million. My dad, you know, had said that was one of his bucket list things he always wanted to do was go to the Arlington million. And, uh, they came out and had a, had a great time. And, and you know, it's always been a, a, a great event and, it's just kind of sad. And, and, and believe me, if, if you have not been to Arlington park, uh, you know, anyone listening and, and you get a chance this summer, even though the racing will, will certainly not be, um, you know, uh, class a top, top grade one quality. Um, you should go just to, just to make sure that you experience it once and, and see, um, what a beautiful track it was. And, and it's almost kind of a melancholy thing because, uh, you know, it's, it's just a, uh, it's just a great track. And I mean, I, I was at Hollywood park once I raced out there one time and, um, you know, I, it was a beautiful track as well in, in, in a, in a really rough neighborhood, but the track yeah. itself was, was, was a really, you know, it was, a they had a, the lakes and the, it, it was, it was a nice, nice place. And, uh, you know, we keep losing these places. Hialeah is not torn down. I mean, they have a casino there, but, uh, you know, they have the sham racing and it's, it's, it's sad that we don't have that. Um, you yep. know, the racing in New England is all gone. There's no more Rockingham. There's no more Suffolk Garden State Park. Uh, that's a place I'm sure you've been quite a bit that. Oh yeah. Uh, the Garden State. Roosevelt
4: right. Ra- Roosevelt Raceway.
1: Yeah. Roosevelt's gone. Uh, uh Atlantic City. Um, City. you know, just, just so many tracks are gone and, uh, and I, I get like, you know, life moves on and it's a it's a tough market, but uh, yeah, if you get a chance to go to Arlington this year, you, you know, this summer, do it. Don't don't miss it because it's a it's a beautiful track, and and at the very least, you'll have memories, and you'll be able to bet on some poly track.
4: Yeah, absolutely. You know, you know, uh, you, you never want to see a racetrack, you know. Close. We we all know that. In reality, right now, with a lot of other racetracks that are racing year round and a little too long, and with the shorter fields that we have, a little consolidation in regards to helping out field sides that are prospering racetracks, you know, is only going to help our industry, especially uh, on the side of, you know, the betting side. You know, more competitive racing during, you know, maybe summer months and other locations kind of like Gulfstream, larger fields things things like that so there's, there's always a shining light in uh in, in trying times
1: that's true thank troy listen thank you for for uh all right thank you for Thanks your time again. and looking forward to uh to doing some shows with you and i, I really want to uh i really want to thank um phil antonucci and jimmy tatker for uh giving us some time earlier in the uh in the card we'll be following their uh their training career is as, as they launch. I guess they're going to have a couple starters at Gulfstream coming up soon, and um, uh, Troy Levy of uh, Circle Eight Farms uh, will be will be doing some shows with him coming up uh, soon, and and everyone else. Uh, thank you for listening, and and we'll be back next week. Uh, again, you can get us at uh, Going in Circles Podcast at Gmail dot com. Uh, anything you want to say, even if you want to be insulting, like the guy that was emailing me last week, not a
5: problem. All right, talk to you guys later. Bye. Why in the past decade has BRL Equine become the premier equine supplement company in the industry? Because we spend millions in research and development before we ever put out a product. Because we use only FDA supervised facilities to manufacture for us. Because what we say is in them, is in them. Because they work. Because if you're not happy, I'll give you your money back. And because top trainers and veterinarians in thoroughbred racing, standardbred racing, three day eventing, and barrel racing all trust in BRL Equine. Shouldn't you? To find out more how Flexify HA, Unlock, Bleeder Shield, and EPO Equine can help you, contact me, Joseph Vellante, 215 501 6880.
0: This is the Going in Circles Podcast, hosted by Horseman. Chuck Simon to become a sponsor to suggest topics or for questions, email going in circles podcast at gmail.com and log on to our Facebook page, going in circles podcast.